Right. Today we'll st we're going to study uh, the, Orth the Orthodox Church under the Ottoman Empire, and we uh, we had talked about that earlier with the fall of Constantinople and the establishment of the Turkish system, or and earlier actually just with the Muslim takeover of the subjugation of the Christian people, where they pay a tax to the uh, to the Muslims in order to live, and then they have uh, essentially no rights, and how they are persecuted. And uh, under the under the Ottoman Turks, the uh, children were taken as tax for the enrollment in the Janissaries. Uh, the Janissaries? Janissaries were a special unit of the Turkish army, made oh. up of Christian children who were essentially kidnapped and oh. raised as Muslims. Mm -hmm. is, are these rules coming out of the Quran, or are these yeah. rules just, you know, the, uh, up as they go along? The taxation on children, I think, was something the Turks devised particularly, but the most of the rules are coming from the Quran, and then just simply the uh, abuse of people that have no rights, and they have no, they have no legal rights in court, their, they, their testimony isn't worth anything, and so um, it's just simple to exploit them and that was why in the Middle East the Christian population was gradually uh, exterminated you know over over the time period well we'll talk about and more dramatically in, in near the end the part I want to talk about today is the uh, the ending or kind of breakdown of the Ottoman system the Ottoman Empire and how we end up with the national churches and in a certain sense, how we end up with the church situation that we have now, although I'm, I'm mostly aiming to take us up to World War One, approximately. The turning point that uh, I'm going to start with is the the last major um, Turkish attack on Vienna in 1683. As you may remember, the Turks, you know, after taking over Constantinople, kind of broke broke through into Bulgaria and gradually subjected uh, Serbia and Greece and up into Romania and started took over Hungary in the 1400s and started pushing up against Austria. And so at the time of the Protestant Reformation, the way that reason, one of the reasons the Protestant Reformation succeeded was that the emperor was being... Uh, threatened by Turkish armies coming up against Vienna at the same time that he was trying to deal with the Protestant Reformation. So he, uh, for a lot of the period of the beginning of the Reformation, he had to rely on uh, Lutheran support to beat back the Turks, and so he couldn't very well be, at the same time be trying to stamp out Protestantism. And so that gave the Protestant Reformation a good chance to get established. Later on, he did try to stamp it out, but but he always had the difficulty that the Turks were waiting to take advantage of any weakness on the part of the German Empire. So in the 1500s, 1600s, the Ottoman Empire kind of was at peak here, and meanwhile was spreading back down into Arabia because the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, were the were the group on the lands of the former uh, Byzantine Empire, but they extended their control down into all the way to Egypt and and uh, along the 
north coast of Africa and down into to Mecca, <coughs> and kind of took over the whole Muslim world, but uh, or a large part of it. Sorry, not the whole, because the, uh, India and obviously uh, Indonesia were not part of um, an empire. But after 1683, what happened is that the balance of power had shifted. Europe had been modernizing, coming out of the Middle Ages, and the uh, Turkish Empire, well, in, in the Muslim empires in general, although wealthy, were wealthy as a result of conquering wealthy countries. And once they stopped conquering, they were not acquiring more wealth because their system which was the enslavement, especially the robbing and enslavement of the subjects' peoples. Uh, I mean, sort of like communism. When communism first took over, you know, naturally they had lots because they were pillaging uh, the country. But but once the you know once you have just the same people and you've kind of pillaged them all out and uh, destroyed the country, there it was not a creative uh, society. So it gradually became impoverished and backward. Now, when did it start? When did the Ottoman Empire? Well, in the, uh, th they started in the 1300s, okay. and they took over Constantinople in 1453. <laughs> so, the Ottomans started to have become weak, you know, governmentally and militarily, but also uh, there was a sense in which they realized that the West had was superior in technology and culture. And this starts leading to a crisis in the East for Muslims and then also also for Eastern Christians of the kind of the West as a um, a higher culture in the in the Byzantine period Byzantium was the center of world culture and so the highest intellectual studies and development was all there and so that's why you know Byzantine Christianity is not at all anti-intellectual it's it's uh, it's rejected scholasticism but it did so kind of in the understanding of what scholasticism was uh, a betrayal sort of of the Christian idea of a unified universe and a spiritual direct spiritual connection to God but with the Turkish takeover, you had the loss of education among the uh, Byzantines and also the um, not very much as education among, you had some among the Turks, but, but they come to sort of see themselves behind Western Europe. And this creates two things, a kind of desire for uh, sort of a westernization in a way, a, let's say an idolization. Yes, idolization and a yes jealousy or reaction um, that in this process you see it really to today in in you know Eastern countries, the Muslim countries that they on the one hand want to westernize in a kind of uncritical way that they adopt things that we wouldn't think particularly desirable to adopt, but they on the other hand, they have a kind of there's a kind of irrational resentment against the West based on this kind of fear of Western superiority. This affects the whole Muslim world uh, gradually, and including the Turkish government. 
and it also will affect our our uh, own Christian populations that we're going to talk about. Certainly, Yes, exactly. We're we're living we're living in it, right? That's exactly what. Yeah. Now, as as the empire weakens, we have some neighbors of of the Ottoman Empire that you know want that sort of want to uh, take advantage of that weakness. The one is the Austrians. Okay. Yes. Sorry. What's 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 motivating your uh, or uh, driving this, this Muslim expansion at this point. Is this still ideological? Like yes. We need to conquer the world for... for uh, yes, for, right. Or is and, it well, and like we just want those guys, they got stuff we want and we want to go and take it? Or? Both, I guess. You know, they were... They, I, I mean, Islam has an ideological element to, the, to world conquest and also it has, I mean, just if you're a big empire you want to take over more stuff. So this is still, you know, this kind of jihad... Uh, Mentality. Yes. Um, yeah, because I mean, up until this period we're coming to, I mean, the, the Ottoman Empire was a Muslim empire, and it certainly, you know, worked on Muslim ideology of jihad, world conquest, and and uh, subservience of the uh, people, right. uh, the rayas, which I guess I think means cattle. You know, that was the Christians. Uh, yeah. R A Y A S. There's really no end in sight. I mean, they just want to keep going, keep right. going right? Yeah. There's no sort of peaceful coexistence. Well, and and once they and as they were a powerful empire, so of course there was little incentive to stop. But once this turned, let's say balance of power turn, military technology turn. Now we had in the wings here, uh, Russia. This is we're up to the time of Peter the Great, and. The Austro, well, but this time it's the Holy Roman Empire, which ultimately becomes the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they want to start. Uh, Austria has been fighting for its life here in in Vienna, and they would like to liberate Hungary, and ultimately Serbia. The uh, the Russians would like to liberate the uh, Romanian lands on their border. Uh, and then all, eventually all Orthodox, and, and kind of their goal is uh, Constantinople, and just essentially to liberate the Byzantine Empire. Now, <clears throat> there are several obstacles to this uh, problem. One is, of course, the Ottomans themselves don't want to be taken over, but that's not the main obstacle. The main obstacle was the other powers in Europe who were interested in the, something they called the balance of power. They didn't want Russia or Austria becoming, you know, too big for their britches and suddenly bossing the rest of them around, particularly England. Yes, that's right. But England especially had their um, their colonial empire. At this point, you know, they kind of got ensconced in Egypt uh, during this period, but they had a big uh, empire down in um, in India that you, they had access to through Egypt. And so Russian, they saw Russian moves into the Mediterranean as a threat, <clears throat> and also Russia was expanding into Central Asia, which they saw as a threat. This is where the Afghanistan wars that took place in this time, <clears throat> because they didn't want Russia getting near India. So England, particularly France also, and Germany to an extent, consistently decided that they decided that they needed to uphold the Ottoman Empire, to keep the Russians 
they tried to basically try to keep the Russians out of the Mediterranean. So they wanted, at first, they kind of wanted to keep the Russians from getting down to the Black Sea and taking over there. And um, the Crimean War, you know, was attack on Sebastopol, the um, Russian naval base on the Black Sea. And especially, they didn't want them getting Constantinople because if, if they got a, even if they got a navy in the Black Sea, they wanted to make sure that the Turks could hold this to stop the Russian navy from getting out. So, British policy, particularly or European policy, let's say, becomes directed towards preserving the Turkish Empire as an offset to Russia and to some extent Austria. But there, of course, is the reality that there's all these Christian people living under Turkish domination. And so we've gone from the Crusades, you know, where they were going to rescue the Christian population to now, well, we're we're helping the Turks to keep the Christian people subjected. Now, this had a problem in that the Turks had the system of, of essentially slaving and plundering the Christian population, and Christians treated us terribly, and uh, they were often massacred, and so this didn't look good. Back back at home, the the people in these countries were not all so politically thinking. They, so, I mean, they didn't like Russia, and they didn't want Russia getting any advantages. But on the other hand, it didn't sound very good to have to be helping the Turks to uh, murder and and you know attack all these poor Christians. So, this got England and France interested in the idea of reform. And so, they're remember they had their their uh, ambassadors in Constantinople, and they were helping the uh, the church, you know, they're basically helping to buy certain candidates to be patriarch. You had to buy your office. And so they would, England and France were sort of taking turns uh, putting up the money to put either a pro-Protestant or a pro-Catholic patriarch in. <clears throat> Actually, during the 1600s was the height of that. You had almost a different patriarch every year uh, on average for the whole century. Just slightly less. I mean, slightly more than a year each. But they uh, then you had so they had the idea of trying to influence the Turkish government towards maybe some reforms <clears throat> to make things sort of look good that they were having a positive impact here. And the Turks, as they started to lose wars, realized that you know they were not able to keep the Russians and the Austrians out. So they needed help, and they needed particularly English and French help to do that, and German to some extent. Germans were investing in uh, the railroads and things down there. So gradually the, um, well, two things. One thing is that sultans themselves felt the, the fascination with westernization, and so they wanted to modernize their military to keep up with the West. So they would bring in Western European advisors. And so there was a kind of self-directed Westernization going on. But also, in order to keep the Europeans happy, they would accepted uh, reforms being suggested by them in regard to the native population, which uh, Christian population, which was the major reform ultimately was emancipation. That is, freeing... Christians from the enslavement that the Quran requires. And when this happened, this created the rift in the Muslim world 
between, let's say, between what we have now of the, let's say, the modern Muslim governments that are essentially westernized and want uh, using, you know, that have parliaments and elections and, you know, all, at least at least the form of that. And on the other hand, what we call the Muslim fundamentalists, which essentially was just the Muslim people. I mean, the Muslim uh, mullahs, I mean, they, they didn't go along with any of this. They thought this was all awful. And, and the people out in, you know, the villages, it was ridiculous, you know, letting the Christians free. I mean, that's what, what's awful, you know. So they, in general, yeah, well, that's, and that's the split that's in Islam today between the Islamicists, who says, oh, those government, you know, that's why when they're talking, you know, Bin Laden, I mean, you know, their number one enemies are the Muslim governments. Because the Muslim governments, like the Saudis and such, I mean, they've, they've sold out. And this sellout has started in the, you know, in the 19th, 18th, 19th so century. It's like in a, hit, a long history. Of oh, yeah. So he's representing, really, the, the people who, in the Turkish people, you know, and I mean, the Muslim people are looking at this and saying, well, this is, yeah, this is just the government. Our leaders are selling out to the West, and we're not going to put up with it. So that's, right. So this, right. So he's totally in line with everything that's happened in the last 200 years. The, uh, and what's interesting is that the, the the moderate, let's say the westernizing part of the government, I mean, those governments are still with us. So this process doesn't happen quickly, and it's still happening. I mean, it continues the division. We'll see that there's a parallel to this on the Christian side as well, although not as the same, and it's because it means part of the inherent system of Islam is is the enslavement of Christians, so we, that's not what they're talking about, but um, well, we'll see. Now... How does this all happen? In the um, after the 1683, the, Muslim, the government in Constantinople starts kind of losing power first to regional governors, who start setting up on the periphery little principalities of their own that the central government has trouble putting down. These regional governors, by the way, I mean as as the government breaks up, they, that's the Christians, are, you know, take the, a lot of the worst of the plundering and everything that's going on, and this helps inspire, plus the fact that the, the new neighbors are are uh, powerful and prestigious, uh, are Christian countries, the Christians living in these areas that are being overrun by brigands or rebels, think, why, why are we putting up with all this? We have our friends across the border who will be glad to help us, so let's... Um, you know, let's let's go contact our friends, and and we'll you know we can uh, if if this guy here can break away from the uh, sultan and set up, we can do the same. So you start having the uh, rulers of Serbia, Moldavia, Wallachia, those three initially start pushing for independence, start you know essentially rebelling and uh, allying themselves with the Austrians and the Russians to to kind of create uh, provinces for themselves. Part of the problem, uh, well, there still is a, a counterattack by the, uh, the, the Ottomans uh, and lots of uh, massacres and things with that. But the um, but the other thing is that the other people run in, the, the European countries run in and say, well, wait a minute, we here we don't want things breaking up. They didn't want Russia getting too much influence, so they said, well, let's what we'll do is we'll We'll let you. We'll let you guys 
make principalities. Okay. But that actually, sorry, we're, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. What that first does, though, is it, it causes the sultan to be worried in the, in the 1700s, and he, instead of having local Romanian princes and a Serbian prince and, and bishops, because these people had their own uh, archbishops, you know, he decides that the best thing to do is to let the Greeks in Constantinople run everything. And um, so the Patriarch of Constantinople is the official head of all Christians, so, and the uh, the wealthy Greek community in Constantinople is known as the Fenar, and so this period, um, which wouldn't mean anything, but we use that term to describe this period, the period of the Fenar rule, where the all of the uh, local uh, ecclesiastical jurisdictions were suppressed, the uh, all the bishops, basically Greeks, appointed out of Constantinople. The princes were Greeks appointed out of Constantinople. Of course, the Turks charged for every appointment, so that meant, and they tended to because you got to, because they, you had to buy your office. They liked to change people, rulers, quick, you know, a lot because that meant the more you changed rulers, you had to somebody else had to buy, you know, yeah, more money. so yeah. more money. So um, what happened is that the, these uh, office new office holders often were using. Because they get into office, they're basically rushing to collect as much money as they possibly can to pay off the debt that they paid the sultan to get the office and make a little extra, extra for themselves. So instead of just running the province or running the church in a certain area, they're basically in there to grab as much money as they can for the short time they know they're going to be there. And then the next guy, the same thing. And so what happened, and then also ideologically, the Fenar... Greeks saw them, they realized that the Turkish Empire was collapsing, but they thought this was their great opportunity because, well, they were, because they were the people kind of running things. Remember, the, the, Turk, the Muslim system was to run the Christians through Christian leaders, particularly bishops and uh, priests, but, but even some secular leaders. So you, and these people cooperated with the system and in return got high positions and protection from the Muslim governments. But the uh, Fanars had beyond this sort of the idea that ultimately they were restoring the Byzantine Empire. Now, under the Turks, the, the authority of the Patriarch of Constantinople was much greater than it had ever been in Byzantium, because in Byzantium he was a bishop among many bishops and among many you know local uh, patriarchs and metropolitans. And, and under the Turks, he was the head of all Orthodox Christians, and so, and his he was a civil head, not just a religious head. So, the Patriarch of Constantinople under the Turks essentially was an emperor, a sort of sub-emperor. Yes. Isn't he basically like a pope? Well, that's in a way leading to kind of some papal. I mean, that's why in today's church uh, you often hear. Greeks or people from the Patriarch of Constantinople sounding like they think that they're, the Patriarch of Constantinople is kind of like the Orthodox version of the Pope. Uh, not in every detail, but I mean, in some ways, it sounds like that. And it's partly from this system that they uh, we were kind of the head over everything. They were the rulers as well. They weren't just bishops. So <clears throat> they, they saw themselves as wanting to... Um, keep control of the whole empire under themselves, all the Christians anyway, and 
that gradually they would you know, emerge as the new Byzantine Empire. Now, for this idea of a kind of empire, they, the various nationalities, uh, and this is in the 1700s going into the early 1800s, <clears throat> to them that was a threat because as much as you know, the, you know, Romanians wanted to be Romanian, Bulgarians wanted to be Bulgarian, Serbians wanted to be Serbian, well, that's, that's all problems. So they tried to unify everybody. First off, keeping all of the, that's why, I mean, the patriarch of Jerusalem today is Greek. Hey, the people, I mean, people in Palestine are not Greeks, but the way that Greece patriarchy is set up is that you had, you have this college of Greek hierarchs who be, are this holy synod, and they always elect one of themselves to be patriarch. And the same was set up in Antioch, something like that. And so all of the high positions were all run by Greeks coming out of this group. <coughs> the and they, one of the things they did was try to a lot of uh, you know in this in Bulgaria there were a lot of uh, people had their services in Bulgarian and Slavonic and they they would burn the Slavonic service books to get rid of try to get rid of the Bulgarian language and impose Greek <coughs> to essentially Hellenize everything. This group ideologically was one that was susceptible to Western ideas. You started to have an interest in Western Western ideas, but in a way, kind of like Peter the Great, attracted to um, not necessarily the Christian West, but to the uh, modern rationalistic uh, philosophy. And, and in a way, and they started starting schools, and, and you had a kind of emerging intellectual culture that was a copy of the rationalistic uh, Enlightenment culture of Western Europe. This causes a reaction, and this, this, by the way, is similar to the leaders of the other groups too. They all, as they became in contact with the West, they were kind of copying the secular Western culture. And the result of this is that you know when they would start a school and be teaching essentially the doctrines of the French Revolution, um, people who were in the church, you know, or would look at it and say, wait a minute, you know, what is this you're teaching? You know, it's, it's, this is awful. And uh, so there was a, a, a reaction on the part of two reactions. The, on one hand, part of the, some of the ideas from the West were like political liberalism and uh, nationalism of the various countries. You know, these countries wanted, they didn't want any of that because they didn't want to break up the system. So particularly the clergy were resistant to changes in the Ottoman system because the Ottoman system kept them in power. I mean, so Patriarch of Constantinople essentially is the emperor, so he's not going to, he doesn't want to rock the boat too much. The other thing was that they saw that a lot of this Western, you know, the Western culture that as they were, that it was being brought in was secular. And so there became a kind of anti-Westernism, but in a sense of, Combined, became combined with anti-intellectualism because it's sort of like, well, if we if that's what education is, then we don't want education. And so you had um, a loss because just by the Turkish persecution, you lost the Byzantine educational tradition. But there became a sort of fear of education entirely, and uh, very you know kind of very little interest in having books at all, other than service books. 
uh, not everybody. I mean, at the same time, you had these people trying to revive education, and to some extent, um, in the 19th century, the revival of, of Western education will bring positive things with it. It's not just all Rousseau, you know, but uh, but they but in, but it created a kind of divide among Eastern Christians between the Westernizers, who essentially kind of like the Enlightenment people they were mimicking despised everything medieval and Christian, essentially, and the ones who kind of were traditionalists who despised everything new and Western and intellectual. And so that, that division, as I said, paralleling some extent the divisions in the, in the Muslim world, you could still see that in orthodoxy today between, in some cases, a very liberal uh, intelligentsia that's very ecumenical and very modernistic in maybe its, its worldview, and on the other hand, as an extreme, I mean, not, not universally, but a, an extreme form that, that is a, you've seen, and then on the other hand, a kind of anti-intellectual traditionalist who is sort of reactionary. Both of these things are part of <clears throat> the orthodox world we live in. There are certainly elements of both of those. Yeah. Not so much in America. You are getting a more of a mix because of better education, I think. But you, but in uh, especially coming out of the 19th century, you had these two elements in the in the Eastern world. Yes. I'm just kind of curious, but if they had been more open to the Western ideas, do you think that they? Yes, they would have got into a lot of scholasticism. And well, uh, they did, I mean, the intelligentsia, um, scholasticism did take over. I mean, that's a problem uh, that Romanides had in his, you know, doctoral dissertation is that uh, the university in Athens essentially was scholastic and they didn't like his, you know, critique of it. So that's the problem. That, you know, to a certain what we'll see is that the intellectual culture that emerges in Eastern Europe is heavily westernized. I mean, as we saw in Russia, the, the schools were using essentially uh, Latin textbooks and scholastic uh, uh, things, partly because what Peter's idea of westernizing was to adopt whole hog, you know, whatever was over there. And there was kind of a uh, despising of their own tradition, which they had very little access to. Now that all, as the course of the 19th century goes on, I mean, to a certain extent, the kinks sort of work themselves out, and you you do start to get an intellectual revival of orthodoxy in an authentic way, but it's a kind of gradual process that comes through the matrix of this conflict between a westernized intelligentsia and an anti-intellectual movement. Were, yeah. there, were there any of the saints that you think were able to kind of fly over this well, split and get another, or you know, a meta view. Yes, I mean, to a certain extent, say Tikhon of Zidonsk, uh, Saint Nicodemus, the Hagiarite, obviously was a an intellectual. I mean, the things that he was doing, I mean, just producing that unseen warfare, the Ignatius Loyola, uh, the Philoclea. I mean, he was obviously able to kind of. He had an interest in both worlds, Go the Western, the Western, and the traditional Orthodox. So, I mean, ultimately, as you educate people in their education, they start to look at their own tradition. But the first impetus among these intellectuals was to uh, reject, you know, we're, we're stuck in this awful world of the Ottoman, and we want something better, and we know that better thing is over there in Europe. So they, 
they begin kind of as imitators of of west of the western rationalism but but it develops i mean that's human nature we don't we're not all just uh, stuck in our odd ideological uh, slot okay so this uh, the, this the result of the fenar doing all this though to try to create the uh, new byzantine empire is that um by the beginning of the 19th century the Romanians, the Serbians, Bulgarians, uh, and Arabs, you know, were all very united about one thing, that they uh, they didn't want to be under the Greeks. I mean, they particularly didn't want to be under the Fenar Greeks, and they wanted their own countries. Uh, they wanted to be left alone by those people. So they started using their relationships with Austria and Russia and the, to, um, to force Constantinople to give them more independence. Oh, partly what, what really kind of finished it for the Fenar was that in 1821, uh, the Metropolitan down here in the Peloponnesus declared a, rev- a revolution, uh, and that the Greek War of Independence began. Uh, initially, by all the uh, local brigands going in and, and massacring all the Muslim people in the towns uh, in that area, and the uh, initially almost lost the war right there because they would do all these massacres. Of course, then the Turks started massacring all the Greeks and that got all the Europeans upset. So the Europeans didn't, you know, didn't want to support this initially because they thought, well, we don't want, we don't want, you know, we want the Ottoman Empire to survive, to hold off the Russians. But, but then they said, well, we can't have the Turks killing all these people, so we'll have to do something. So they intervened about 1827 uh, when the Greeks were losing, and when it looked like they had lost, essentially, the war, they kind of jumped in there and rescued them and then uh, set up uh, the kingdom of Greece, but just in southern Greece. Well, that meant, when the, when, the, when that rebellion happened, the Turks, uh, rather unfairly, went over to the patriarch on Pascha morning and um, strung him up in the courtyard gate to... Um, show their displeasure with the whole thing. And then they decided that putting Greeks in charge of everything probably wasn't a great idea. So they started letting the local people take charge. But the, And the local people, with the support of their neighbors, were able to kind of establish autonomies, autonomous states initially in the early 1800s, where they were essentially independent, but they claim, you know, officially under the Sultan, because that was what the English, the English would not allow these places to become independent or, let's say, protectorates of Russia or something. Well, protectorates were not under Russia. They would say you had to be under the Sultan, but you can basically be protected. And so they started to uh, develop their local cultures to bring... uh, back their local languages, publish books, establish schools, and create Serbian, Bulgarian, and Romanian cultures. And gradually, uh, through the wars, I should say something, but, well, in 1870s, they, there's a Russo-Turkish war that the Russians win decisively. And this gives the opportunity for all these countries to become independent and to reestablish their church independence as well. Initially, the Patriarch Constantinople tries to excommunicate them for doing that and declares the uh, heresy of philatism, which is nationalism, 
which is a legitimate heresy because so when the Bulgarians started their patriarch, they said, okay, every Bulgarian, wherever you're living, you're now part of the Church of Bulgaria because our church is made up of anyone who's Bulgarian. Well, that's a heresy. And strangely enough, though, the Greeks uh, in this country, I mean, you have Greek Orthodox churches. I mean, that's a philatistic setup um, because you can't, in the Orthodox Church, establish jurisdictions by nationality, only by location. But, it, I mean, it, was, it is proper to have a Orthodox church and jurisdiction in Bulgaria for the Bulgarians. But if a Bulgarian is living in Greece, well, he's not part of the Bulgarian Orthodox church. He's part of the church in the town he lives in. Now, in America, this whole, this philatist problem is, you know, kind of here because each nationality has its own jurisdiction. But it's, it's really an error because they're, because our, we're supposed to be only jurisdictions by location, not by nationality. So it's the her so nationalism is a heresy in the sense if you try to apply it to the church. However, European nationalism, 19th century nationalism, is the ideology of these people. I mean, they were they established their states kind of on the basis of Western models. You had a clash of the uh, liberals uh, who wanted. Uh, representative government, constitutions, parliaments, and the autocrats who wanted the king to basically run everything. Uh, but all kind of on the Western model. That's why when you go to these countries, uh, of course you had communism, but in a sense they didn't they didn't recreate Byzantium because they were not looking for well how because Byzantium is sort of non-nationalistic. I mean even the Greeks were were they were interested in presenting themselves as a revival of classical Greece. And that's when you go to Athens. I mean, essentially you see, you know, uh, the modern city with the Parthenon there. Not, you know, there's no obvious continuity with Byzantine Greece. As you, if you go to Thessalonica, you see it's sort of more Byzantine city. So they weren't restoring Christian Roman Empire. They were restoring pagan classical Greece and Greek culture. So Hellenism, this is where the idea of Hellenism as kind of a sort of mystical goal comes in. And that's the tradition that they are preserving because that was what the Western people thought was so great. I mean, the English people didn't care about restoring Byzantium because they thought Byzantium was some kind of corrupt form of Christianity. But, uh, you know, the golden age of ancient Greece, well, that's something good. And they, they adopted that mentality themselves. Yes. Well, you know, Justinian, of course, shut down the, you know, the, the yeah. of Athens and all those kind of things. So, right. You know, there, there, there was. It's, it's ironic, you know, that yeah. the West ends up adopting all of that stuff through Boethius and all yeah. that, and they, they glorify all of that. It's well, and through scholasticism, you know, later the scholastic idea of, of. Yeah, kind of making human reason as an Aristotle the arbiter of our existence here means that yeah they they that secular look at philosophy secularization even of ancient philosophy uh so that's why you create uh out of the ottoman empire we get essentially secular modern states there are orthodox people living in them but the leadership of these states really look to the west and western nationalism as and, and uh kind of classical heritage as their as their reasons for existence 
and kind of to preserve, you know, Bulgarian nationality for Bulgaria, you know, and on special Bulgarian history and bus Bulgarian this and that. So there's a kind of a loss of a to of the Orthodox tradition in all this. Essentially, yes. Well, I was just thinking. One is the, the people getting you were saying trying to get back to a Byzantium kind of idea, but most of them never experienced that originally. So it's yeah. an idea they had of what Byzantium well, was. <clears throat> right. Well, I mean, they weren't trying to. They were not trying to get back to a Byzantine idea. They, well, okay, the Fanar wanted Byzantium, but on the other hand, they what they wanted was to be the rulers of a unified empire. But they ideologically themselves had adopted this idea of classical Greece as right. their goal, as that they were going to be the bringing they, back classical culture, not not they, orthodoxy. But what I meant was what they. Again, what they assumed it to be, because none of them had experienced it. So. Well, in a sense, um, you know, I mean, to a certain part of Byzantine life had ex survived. I mean, the church survived, but in such a kind of <coughs> maybe uh, persecuted and debased fashion that that was not of interest to people. Right. What was of interest was was the West. Right. And and that's why their schools were all connected to Western rationalism. I just wanted to say uh, a few things. One is that as the uh, time went on, the amount of territory left to, to Turkey shrank. The powers tried to hold things back for a long time because they wanted to keep the Ottoman Empire viable. But in 1913, Greece, Bulgaria, and Serbia made an alliance and just swept down and swept up and uh, got to where we are today. And actually, 19, World War One. I, I mean, in a certain sense, there's a continuation. I mean, these wars were being... 1912 was the invasions. 1913 was a war between Serbia and Bulgaria over who was getting what. And then 1914, uh, the Austrians were mad at the Serbians, you know, and so was vice versa. And the Bulgarians were mad, so they jumped on the Austrian side. World War One is just a rolling continuation of, of all this events going on. And then in... Um, 1923, after World War One, the Greeks are trying to take over part of Turkey where all the Greeks lived, and they lost. <clears throat> and that's when all the the uh, Christian populations were expelled, and uh, there was this exchange of populations. Meanwhile, as the as the uh, Ottoman Empire was shrinking, their, the Muslim refugees were being resettled by the Turks. To, uh, into Christian areas to try to, as buffers, and so you had the emergence of, these were people also very upset about the Christians taking over, and so they also had a kind of uh, jihad idea, ideology. The other thing I mentioned, emancipation, uh, the Crimean War is what led to the official, where the French and British had fought the Russians for preserved Turkey, but demanded in return official emancipation proclamation of the Christians are now equal citizens with the Muslims. There's no religious distinction. I mean, the religion, different religions, but no political distinction, no legal distinction. In practice, completely rejected in the empire. The result of it is, though, that um, there's a massive uh, amount of... Uh, uh, as, the, as the Muslims realize that they are not going to be able to keep the Christians as slaves, they suddenly say, well, why do we have these people here at all? We don't need them. They're, they're a threat because the Europeans are going to say, oh, you have to let them do things. So 
just get rid of them. So there became this pol- this policies essentially of of mass extermination of Christian populations. Partly uh, with the Greek rebellion that began that I mean it was going on to some extent, but it accelerated. You had big massacres up in here, and then so in the 1860s you had tremendous amount of massacres all through Syria, Lebanon, tens of thousands of of people. Uh, I mean I think like in Syria, Lebanon, like 60,000. Christians were killed in southern Turkey in what's Mardin uh, area. Ninety-six thousand Christians in that in that city area alone were killed. Uh, the the massacres of the there were a series. I mean, we hear about the Armenian massacres during World War One, about a million. But before that, there were two waves of uh, of Armenian massacres, each probably about a hundred thousand. So there was a. Uh, or 100 to 200,000. And then after those massacres, I imagine a lot started immigrating. Well, of course, that caused yeah people to flee. So, I mean, the way the Middle East is now, you know, there's you go to the Middle East, there's very little Christian population anywhere except Egypt. See, Egypt had broken away from the Ottomans, mo- attempted to modernize sooner, and second, got under a British protectorate in the 1880s. And so the cops... Um, were mostly protected up until the 1950s when Nasser took over. So that's why now there's still a large Coptic population and they're being persecuted for the same reason, that since we're not allowed to enslave them, what good are they? So this, but this uh, transformed, I mean, this created essentially the hatred in the Middle East. They they kind of unleashed, well, the Muslims, you know, always in a sense hated the Christians, but that now they said they couldn't control them. They wanted to destroy them. And the Christian population, what was left of the Christian world in the Middle East, uh, was largely destroyed at this time. And the um, that's why now you go to these places, they're mostly empty. I know. Yeah. I thought this, it had been this way for hundreds of years, but apparently... It's still, I mean, it's been, they've been persecuted. They've been losing ground for a long time, because they've, they've been conquered over a thousand years. But And this, uh, so you have... Yeah, this destruction and mass exodus uh, to the West still going on. Turkey, meanwhile, had been taken over by the Young Turks. The Ottoman Empire fell internally before World War One, actually, 1908. And the Young Turks um, developed the idea, I mean, they adopted Western nationalism too, and only Turkish nationalism. And so they uh, wanted to impose sort of Turkification on everyone. They wanted to get rid of Christians and... They also wanted to impose Turkish authority on the Arabs. Of course, that made the Arabs hate them, and so you have Arab nationalism, which uh, the British picked up on in World War One, and used to destroy the Turkish Empire down there. <coughs> but now, where's the, where are the Arab Christians and all this? They, up here, the Christians were the majority. So essentially, once they were able to break the Turks militarily, and get the British to go along with it. They set up their own countries, got rid of the Turks, and that was, you know, kind of westernized, but Christian countries. Down here you have the populations be- where they were a minority because they'd been under the Muslims for so long. Second, they, you know, with the extra massacres, they were a real uh, small minority. What the Arabs did was they also embraced Western nationalism, but they embraced it in a different way. They... Uh, became the kind of leaders of Arab nationalism. And so they looked to not to classical Greece, 
but to the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates as the golden age when all Arabs were together and kind of ruling the world. And so they said, well, this, you know, it's only these awful Turks. You know, if they would have just left us alone, you know, we Arabs could have ruled the world and had the greatest civilization. And so um, the modern uh, Arab nationalist movement is largely Christian in origin, uh, even though the, the time, you know, the persecution of Christians was, I mean, still, I mean, the, the, this dynamic of the uh, secular versus the fundamentalist reaction is very much the part of the Middle East. The persecution of Christians is very strong, but the solution they see is the is secular nationalism, and that's why there's constantly this attempt to identify themselves with a joint Arab heritage. I mean, so in a sense, they also completely reject the the Byzantine inheritance in a way, the kind of their own Christian past, because they want to identify with the ruling class, which is the Arabs. Thereby, um, ambassador from Lebanon, who said that, uh, you know, we Arabs have, you know, we Christian Arabs, we we were here from the beginning and we welcomed our Arab brothers when they arrived in the 6th century, our Arab Muslim brothers, and ever since we've stood by them shoulder to shoulder against all outsiders. Yeah, so they don't want to see a conflict between themselves as Christian Byzantines and the Muslim conquerors. They want to say, well, no, we are, we were with you, you know, we're, we're, and we're side by side against the, everybody else, all the Westerners and, so, um, let me think of anything else. So this, this, is very much a part of uh, what's going on in the Middle East today. So that's where we are with modern Western national secular states here. I mean, as the basis of these, all, in which there is orthodoxy, some revival of orthodoxy coming about slowly, but also a kind of strong reactionary element of anti-intellectual elements in these countries as well. And the same in the in the Muslim world. And then uh, the Muslims, you know, the Christian the Christian populations in the Muslim-controlled areas essentially being driven out or identifying themselves with the... I mean, trying to identify themselves with the Muslim conquerors, uh, but but largely being driven out. Overall, you know, from the time... When you study uh, the time when their conquer, conquest occurs... So the Middle East was taken in the 600s. I mean, there were always tremendous massacres and, and uh, you know, pillaging and plundering going on. So the Christian population started dropping immediately in these areas. And so it's been dropping. It's been dropping. And, and so that's why, I mean, the Arabs are in kind of in the worst shape because they're in the place that's been under the Muslim conquest the longest. I mean, other than the cops, somehow the cops, you know, still have probably like 15% of the country or 20, maybe 20%. You know, so it's been a long-term deterioration, but but just in the modern period, it's really accelerated, because by once you break, by taking away the the system that the Quran has set up, so the so the, the Muslims think, well, as long as the Christians are slaves, then we're obligated to protect them, even though they yeah. plunder them and kill them. But but once they once you take that away, well, now you're breaking God's law. So that's uh, so actually okay so killing so now they don't deserve to live. So if you kill them, well that's good. There's no they don't have an idea that everybody has basic human rights and that we're all equal and everybody. They I mean they think that if you're not Muslim, well you should be enslaved or killed. And so if you're not willing to be enslaved, then of course you need to be killed. 
So that's, that's why it was, it was yeah. better. The Christians were safer anyway when they were, you know, in some ways. In yeah, somewhat safer. Although I mean, it was a slow destruction going. I mean, there was plenty of uh, awful things that happened to them, even well, you know, when they were there. It's just that it was kind of more random. Once once they were breaking free, then now it's deliberate, you know, to kind of try to wipe them out. 